Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. This evening we will be discussing the Paramatma Sandarbha of Srila Jiva Goswami. Uh, we're at the beginning of the work. And we'll continue with our discussion of the very first Anucheda of the Paramatma Sandarbha, wherein uh, Paramatma is defined. And Srila Jiva Goswami begins this discussion by saying that Paramatma is the Shetrajna. Um, so I'll read a little bit from the very beginning and then we'll go to where we left off. Jiva Goswami begins this Anucheda or this section of his Sandarbha by saying, Now Paramatma will be defined. Although the Paramatma aspect of Bhagavan exists in the spiritual world of Vaikuntha, also, even that Paramatma is just a function of Bhagavan himself. For this reason, Paramatma is said to be that feature of Bhagavan that pertains specifically to the cosmos. As such, the following two verses, by first describing the nature of the individual being, the jiva, who is involved in the cosmos, Jad Bharat specifies the nature of Paramatma to King Rahugana. So we left off. Uh, Jiva uses now, of course he explained that these two verses specifically pertain to the first verse, pertains to uh, the Jivatma and the second verse pertains to Paramatma. And then he uses as further evidence uh, of the nature of Paramatma a verse from the Srimad Bhagavatam seventh canto first canto, I'm sorry, seventh chapter. Now, we're at the place in the discussion where uh, the one who, even though pure, perceives these familiar modifications of the mind and upon seeing them becomes identified is known as the jiva. So, the jiva has this tendency to be influenced by upadis. He takes on the characteristic of the environment you put him in. Um, kind of like one of these little lizards that will be appearing on the railing soon. Uh, on the railing, it's a nice little brown lizard, and then it jumps over onto a bush and it becomes green. So that's an outward appearance of what happens to the living entity within the material nature. You put us in one environment and we come out one way and you, if you put us in a different environment we'll come out a different way. So, even though pure, we ourselves are pure, means although transcendental to Maya, we are transcendental to Maya. Um, the verb vikaste perceives, pertains clearly seeing means clearly seeing. The phrase 
These familiar presentations, vibhutis of the mind, refers to the modifications, vrittis of the mind, which is the internal or psychical apparatus generated by the maya of he who is the witness of all fields. What's being discussed here, where we left off, is the fact that even though pure, there's vibhutis, there's there's a continual play, play in our mind of associating with the environment. And it continually absorbs us. Uh, so these modifications of the mind come about by the environment and they just they just create a, a it's like a reel in a movie. We're continually involved in in what's around us. And the mind plays right into the environment. Uh, so but there is another Shetrajna, another observer who's observing all the fields of activity, and that is Paramatma. So we're right at the beginning of the book, and the distinction is being made. What is the nature of the jiva, and what is the nature of the Supreme Lord in relationship with his material manifestation? That is the Paramatma feature of Bhagavan. The jiva is all referred to as a witness of the field. Take trust not because he's a jatir of the field. Shnatri. Of its own two bodies, psychic and physical. As is said. Okay, so the psychic and physical bodies are our two bodies. We have a physical form and we also have a mental form. Sometimes we have a mental form of ourself that doesn't conform to the <laughs> physical form that uh, is actually there. Uh, so uh, that's also of our nature. Uh, we sometimes don't see ourselves for who we really are. So Jiva now quotes a verse from the uh, first canto. Bewildered by this extrinsic potency, the individual self although transcendental to the three gunas of material nature, thinks of itself as consisting of the three gunas and thus undergoes the misery resulting from this identification. Jiva proceeds to explain what he means and what this verse means to him in the context of the presentation. By what characteristics is the mind to be understood as a product of maya? What are the characteristics of the mind that, that make us see that it's a product of maya? In response, Jodbarat says that the mind is that which pertains to the empirical self. Empirical means... Uh, that which moderates our inspection of the empirical world around us. 
the world perceptible by the senses. So um, it, re it pertains to that. That's what the mind actually pertains to is filtering the sense environment that the living entity finds himself in in the three modes of material nature, meaning that it is created as an adjunct upadi of the empirical self. It itself is an upadi. And remember, what is what is our definition of upadi? Upadi is an injunct. It's a... Uh, well, where's the actual definition? Adjunct. It is that which does not belong to the essential nature of an entity or object. It's an upadi. It's something outside. But in the case of the mind, we, the mind is being used in relationship to the environment. And it's an upadi. It's actually not the true nature of the self. The mind is an upadi. Yes, it's what it's being said here in this. Meaning that it is created as an adjunct, upadi, of the empirical self. It's, it's created, its function is in relationship to our empirical being. That's what it does. It is it's sometimes called the, the, the king of all the senses. It's that agent that takes a sense perception and accepts it or rejects it. I like this. This is very not good for me. This is good. Or the mind will see a sense object. Ah, I don't want that. Smell something. Oh, that's a flower. It smells very good. Or sell, smell something you know, foul and say, oh, I don't want to go there. It doesn't smell good. So... Uh, that's what the mind is doing. It is, it is that it's taking the empirical environment, the sensual environment that the living entity is is in, and it's 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 making distinctions for the self who is identified with the mind body complex. So when you say the empirical self there, the mind is an adjunct, created as an adjunct to our empirical self. Yes. So that's not our pure self, but our self that's identified. Our self that's identified with the material energy. This indicates that the mind is a creation with which the jiva becomes identified. Meaning that it the mind as adjunct, or upadi, is thenceforth taken to be the living entity's actual identity. We take what the mind gives us and we accept that as our very being. So, whatever, whatever, whatever environment we're in, we adapt to that environment and the, and the mind makes us party to that empirical experience and gives us a role. So we've now taken a role in material existence. I'm a man. I'm a woman. I'm smart. I'm 
ignorant. I'm strong. I'm weak. I'm so all these things are unrelated to us, but we 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 immediately pick up our script and start reading from it and and come right into the play of material nature. Oh yes, I was born in this environment. I'm an American, and I you know I went to my schools and I got up and I said my pledges of allegiance and now I have my army uniform and I'm going to fight for my country because that's what it's all about. So we take on a role according to the environment and we we play it out. Or no, I'm a, I'm a hippie and I'm not going to go to the war. I'd rather go to Canada. So I had friends that fell into that category. So I had friends on both sides. Myself, I don't know. I couldn't see, so they didn't want me. Prabhupada <laughs> said we've given the power of attorney to our mind. Yes, the power, the power to make determinations for us. What is it? A power of attorney. That means the mind can make the decisions. I have a power of attorney. Bhakti Ross has a power of attorney over me. If they put me in a hospital, she gets to make the decisions, <laughs> and I have the power of attorney over her. <laughs> so. That's that's a lot of lot of power, is it not? That's making so the mind's doing that for us. We've we've given up our own rights to our mind, and our mind is now calling the shots according to our environment, according to how we're you know we think we're in control. But the mind has nothing to do with our, our being, our true self, the essence of our nature. It's not us. So what's the nature of samadhi? What is the nature of samadhi? Samadhi is a place where the mind, it's just like deep sleep. It's not that being non-conscious of the empirical world around you. So that's why the, the sages, the saints, they, they, like a Sukadev, walks through the world, he's unaffected. Women taking him, it doesn't affect him. He's a nude man. He has no cares about anything. Who's following him around? The kids and the, you know, he's, he, from, a, from a materialistic viewpoint, the, you know, the Jivan Mukta, the liberated being, he just doesn't fit in. He doesn't have to. No, he got the script. And he ripped it up and he threw it away. In Sukadev's position, yeah, what did Sukadev do? He said, I'm not going going out. I'm not leaving here until you guarantee me I don't have to read my part in the play. I'm not right. I refuse. Jiva Goswami goes on in the Sanocheta. How is the mind further described? It is a performer of impure actions. The word impure here means those actions that are undertaken from the separate self-sense rooted in non-awareness of Bhagavan. How are the presentations, vibhutis, or modifications of the mind described? They are continuous, nitya, meaning 
that they are beginningless anadi and anadita, I'm sorry, and that they proceed in perpetual succession, anugata. How and when are these modifications manifest and unmanifest? In response to this, Jadbarat says they appear during the waking and dreaming states and disappear during deep sleep. So we only need to play the part when we're awake. And then we play it back when we're asleep, but we mix up the players and we mix up the environment and we create things that aren't there. So we live in a dream world, but the physical world around us is a true dream to our self. Why? Because of non-awareness of Bhagavan. Once we turn our awareness towards Bhagavan, then the environment starts to make sense. There's something to do in the environment to serve Bhagavan. And what's the nature of that service? Well, it can it can be doing the same things that we did when we had the script and we played on the stage, except we've we've changed as an actor. So what do, what do, what do they call that? Why do we what is the nomenclature for applying everything in Krishna's service? The Goswami's used. I forget. It's not coming to me. It will, hopefully. What do we say that when we when we can use anything in Krishna's service? Oh. Yukta Vairagya. Yes. We're not playing the script anymore. It's Yukta Vairagya. It's renunciation with a purpose, which is torn turn towards Bhagavan, a turning of consciousness. Now the commentator, Sachin Das Babaji, he makes some interesting points here, which we need to, to take note of. Like many verses in the Srimad Bhagavatam, um, these two beings, you know, one after the other, uh, they involve a certain amount of ambiguity. And what we mean by that is Jad Bharat doesn't make it clear in chanting these two shlokas to King Rahugna that he's talking about two manifestations of Shetrajna. He doesn't make it clear. So that could be a problem because there, from that, from the there, because of that little bit of in, in, what do they say, ambiguity. Because of that ambiguity, the monists can come up with their own interpretation, and that could be that there's only a single consciousness. There's not the jivatma and the paramatma. There's one consciousness, which is the observer. Now, Sridhar Swami, the great commentator on Srimad Bhagavatam, he does state that there's two Shetrajnas in his commentary. So he points it out to the student of 
Srimad Bhagavatam in his commentary these this is this these verses these two consecutive verses are referring to two Shetrajnas or two observers of the field of activity. And then it's pointed out that he does, however, lean towards a, monist, a monist, monistic view by saying the Shetrajna, witness of the three states of wakefulness, dreaming, and deep sleep, is the Atma, the reality, Tattva. So he attributes attributes both Shetrajnas to the Supreme Tattva or Absolute Truth or in our case, in our reading, Paramatma. Sridhar Swami, oh. the great commentator on and remember, he did, remember what Jiva said back in the Tattva Sandarbha, we're going to rely on the, on the commentary of Sridhar Swami. We're going to rely on his interpretation of the Bhagavatam, except where he gives the opinion of the followers of Sankaracharya. So he does do that. Why did he do that? Well, there's certain reasons that have been given. Who knows the reasons of the Acharyas? But some have tried to reason and have come up with the conclusion that he did that because of his audience at the time. So we see we have the commentary of Sridhar Swami. I'm not sure of the, of the, uh, the time period of that. And then along comes Jiva Goswami and he, and he gives us a the Sundarbas. Now, Sridhar, he kind of went along with the, at some places in his Bhagavatam commentary, he wrote things that were flattering to the, the monistic viewpoint, to those that simply, the Brahmavadis, those that believe in the ultimate issue, everything is Brahman. So he played to them but he primarily gave what? The Vaishnava viewpoint. So he gives both viewpoints in his commentary. <coughs> Why was that? Because if you bring them in, you have to bring them in. It's just like the rest of the Vedas. The Vedas themselves pulled the living entity. They pull, uh, well, especially humans. They don't <laughs> weren't really written for the... the uh, the lower species, but they pull them in according to where they are in the modes. So Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, the Vedas mainly deal with the three modes of material nature. That's what they primarily deal with. So there's parts of the Vedas written for those in Thomas, parts of the Vedas for those in Rajas, and some of the Veda for those in Sattva. And according to their mode of material nature, they're drawn into the Veda because there's instructions there for them which will satisfy their nature. If you do this, you will have that. If you do that, you will have that. It builds faith, and gradually that faith, acting in accordance with the Vedas, will bring you to a stage 
through the association of the is you'll come to what? A commentary like Srimad Bhagavatam. Vyasadeva saw he didn't give the he didn't give the the most significant aspect of the Vedas, which is the Bhagavan conception. He played to those that wanted to advance to the heavenly planets. Either either they wanted to get good karma where they were or advance their karma onto the heavenly planets or attain liberation. So those are all basically bore of the modes of material nature. Ajiva clarifies, especially in the next section of this particular Anucheta, by reference to Bhagavad Gita verses, um, where the Kshetra, the field of activities, and the Shretajna are discussed there. He makes it clear that two specific Shetrajnas are what is the tattva, or the proper understanding of the Vedic conclusion. But he chooses these two verses from the Bhagavatam that we're studying right now uh, so that one cannot misconstrue the radical monistic theory of the self's absolute identity with Brahman. So his interpretation of the two verses is clearly there's the Jivatma and there's the Paramatma. Jiva Goswami goes on and he breaks down the second verse and makes it very clear what the second verse about the Paramatma is stating. On the other hand, there is another supreme witness described as follows. The Supreme Witness will be described now. He is the primeval person, Purana Purusha, meaning that he is the unconditional cause of the cosmos. As is well known from descriptions such as the second canto, the Purusha is the first or primary descent avatar of Bhagavan. That's from the second canto of the Bhagavatam, sixth chapter, 41st, 41st verse. The Purusha, the creator of the material universe, the cosmos, in his different aspects, Karna Dakshai Vishnu, Kashira Dak- Garbo Dakshai Vishnu, and Kashira Dakshai Vishnu, uh, is the first or primary descent avatar of Bhagavan. He's, that's the first manifestation of the Supreme Lord in relation to his external potency. He is unmedi- unmediatedly self-existent and self-revealing meaning that he does not depend on anyone, as is the case of the jiva. We can't live a day without our dependence. We can't exist without it. We are dependent for everything. He is unborn, 
meaning that he is altogether free from birth and all other ensuing transformations. He is the almighty controller, meaning that he is the controller even of powerful gods like Brahma. He is Narayan, meaning that he supports all living beings through his own power of interior regulation. He is Bhagavan, meaning that he is partially endowed with inherent potency because he is an integral portion of Krishna or Swayam Bhagavan. He is Vasudev, the shelter or substratum of all living beings. And finally, he is established in the self, or in other words, in his own intrinsic being, by virtue of the potency that is innate to his own being, which here refers to his own intrinsic potency, Shwarup Shakti. Here the passive voice has been used in the in the sense of the active. The meaning is that although he has entered into the extrinsic potency of Maya and is imminent within the conditioned living being as its indwelling self, by his own innate potency, he remains situated in his own intrinsic being meaning that he is not in contact with Maya. A mouthful. So now in all these, I have not read the, the individual words uh, from the sloka. Uh, Purana Purusha, uh, Avatar, Saksad Sayan Jyoti, Swayan Jyoti, Aja, Paresha, Ayana, Naram, Narayan, Narayan. Uh, Antaryami, Atmani, Swaswarupa, Swamayaya. So all these verses are what are the words that uh, we're talking about here. Uh, Jud Bharat said in his sloka. It's, so Jiva Goswami's expanding all those and not, explaining them. Yes. It sounded like you said he does not come in contact with Maya. He remains situated in his own intrinsic being, meaning that he is not in contact with Maya. So but that and that's the Purusha. That's this. Oh, that's the that's Bhagavan himself, or that's Peru. I'll read the sentence again. All right. Okay. The meaning is that though he has entered into the extrinsic potency uh -huh. of Maya, I see, and is imminent within the conditioned living being as the indwelling self. By his own innate potency, he remains situated in his own intrinsic being, oh. 
meaning that he is not in contact with Maya. What is that word? Achinta. Achinta, beta, beta, tattva. Part of that sentence was that he was within each living entity. Within the conditioned living being. Imminent, indwelling, self, antrayami. He's within and without, as explained in the Isopanishad. Jiva is clarifying that there is no other agent. Paramatma, according to his own agency of intrinsic potency, does not involve any effort on his part. It's not that he has to work to be manifest throughout the cosmos. Not only manifest throughout the cosmos as Paramatma, but he's also the manifester of the cosmos as Karnadakshai Vishnu. It's all part of his intrinsic nature. Sarup Shakti. That, that Shakti is powerful enough to what? Let him maintain his freedom from being influenced at all by his external, external energy. Bahiranga. He's not influenced by it. And what's the nature of that Sarup Shakti if we can we we experience the Sarup Shakti in what way? Its manifestation comes to us through bhakti, through the devotees. And in a similar way as we like Paramatma it's Paramatma, it is his Sarup Shakti, but if we can take shelter of that Sarup Shakti, what's our relationship with Maya? We can similarly become unaffected by the external potency. We'll finish up this section of the Anacheta. This other witness, Chaitrajna, is distinct from the jiva because he is the knower or witness of all shatras due to being Vasudev, the shelter of all beings. In contrast, the shatrajna described in the previous verse, meaning the first of the two verses, knows only its own shatra. This means that the other supreme witness is distinct from the jiva who is deluded by maya. Everybody with me? Being utterly free from the influence of maya, this other witness is the pure shetrajna, and the atma, the self, which here refers to paramatma, or the supreme imminent self, and the atma, the self, which here refers to Paramatma, the supreme imminent self. For these reasons also, the primary quality of Shetrajna is found only in Paramatma. So truly, when we speak of Shetrajna, 
or a witness, the jiva's witnessing is it's really insubstantial is what jiva's saying. When you're talking about, say, Trajna and knowing the field of action, what the jiva knows is, what, it's a pittance in comparison to the unlimited knowledge of Paramatma. He knows all, all fields. So when we, you know, Shetrajna is should be primarily applied to Paramatma. He's the witness everywhere. He knows all fields of activity. How much do we know? Well, we can know that I'm this body and I think I'm that car and I think I'm this or that. These are all a part. They're not even a true manifestation of an observation because our observation is so much influenced by our mind's interpretation of the environment we're in. So can you really say we're at even a Shetrajna? We're, you know, now in the next part, we'll talk about some verses from the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna also explains these two knowers of the field from the 13th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. So if you want to study any Bhagavad Gita between now and the six weeks from now when we take this up again, I would read the 13th chapter. This is the last class for six weeks. Oh, I guarantee you'll have lots of classes. (laughs) Real classes. This is stated by Daksha. This is what this section is closed out with this quote from the sixth canto, fourth chapter. Daksha says, although a jiva could know all these, the body, the senses, and so on, as well as the gunas of primordial nature, he does not know the omniscient, unlimited Bhagavan whom I worship. Close with a little commentary. So the shetra, the field for the individual jiva, So we're going to discuss now for a little moment or two the jiva ashetrajna. What are the observations? What's the field of activity which the jiva observes? Uh, So our field of activity is, is the body, basically. That's what we observe. And then we use we use certain senses, knowledge acquiring senses of the body to expand our field of activity. So we can see, we can hear, we can smell, we can taste, we can feel. That gives us, lets us go outside of our body a little bit. Um, And what kind of action do we have in regards to our field? Well, we have the action commonly called karma. (laughs) So (laughs) we get involved in the environment around us and what what do we we sow seeds in the form of karma? Uh, so karma is the seed from which the fruits of happiness and distress come to us. So it's not a very bountiful. Well, I guess you could have good karma. We have some happiness, but we also have some distress. Uh, We misidentify ourselves with the body, both gross and subtle. Uh, 
uh, and the subtle body is uh, a psychic apparatus uh, which is attending to the jiva. It's it's our you know it's attending to us and basically we become its slave. The mind we become a slave to the mind. Uh, so our subtle body, of course, includes the mind. Uh, the five cognitive senses, uh, the five cognitive active senses moving around, uh, five divisions of the vital force, the prawn, and uh, these two upadis, the physical body and the subtle body, are referred to by Jiva as the upadis upon the self. So our, our nature, of course, is pure. and uh, But we appear to possess these modifications of the mind in the form of happiness and distress. They appear to be... Well, we, we take them as our very self. I'm happy, I'm sad hot and cold. Mm. So now by nature the mind is it's it's not a living entity. It may act like a living entity but it's not. It's a filtering agent used by the jiva. So our individual consciousness we are conscious the nature of the self is conscious uh, we exist, we have awareness, and we can, you know, we can have pleasure. Satchitananda, that's the nature of this being, of the self. So, but the mind does not have any of these features. It's inert. It has no inherent agency. It has no ability to exert anything. Um, but our individual consciousness intelligizes the mind. We actually put the mind into motion, uh, making uses of the uses of the senses and the vital force. <clears throat> and the mind's generally impure. Why? Because it uses uh, its agency, which we have given power to it. It uses that agency uh, for independent or separate interest. <coughs> Not ex We don't acknowledge through our actions within the three gunas of material nature um, the existence and ownership of Bhagavan. And that's really the impurity of the mind. Now the conditioning, there's some important points here, philosophical, philosophical points that are sometimes misunderstood, which we'll go over. 
<coughs> excuse me, the conditioning of the jiva has no beginning. It's a nadi. There's no original sin. There's no origin, uh, origin. There's not, it's not like, well, the Falvod is defeated by this understanding that um, this conditioning of the Jiva, it has, has no beginning. Uh, there's no fall down. There's no inception, inceptive choice to be conditioned from a Tatasta region So that's also a misconception that some Vaishnavs take. What is that? Inception. Oh, the Jeeva's in the Tatasta region. He's in the middle ground between spiritual and material, and he makes a choice. I'm going to go for the material, or I'm going to go for the spiritual. That's not the proper understanding of the conditioning of the modes of material nature. It's, there's never a time uh, that our conditioned state began. We are the Lord's, we're in the intermediary condition and we were, were the Buddha Jivas, were the Jivas that are conditioned by the Lord's Bahiranga Shakti, his external potency. And we can put an end to that. Therefore, vrittis, mental modifications, are called nitya. Not a specific one, a specific impression is not nitya, but there's a continuous flow is what the word means in relationship to the vrittis of the mind, the impressions upon the mind. Um, those mental modifications they come in waves. They just keep coming. So that's why they're considered nitya. Now, Paramatma, as Shaitrajna, um, also witnesses the physical and psychic um, bodies of the jiva but is not influenced or conditioned by them. Um, and it's like two birds sitting on a tree, as explained in the Mudaka Upanishad. One's taking the fruits and the other's observing. Uh, Paramatma is, is an expansion of Bhagavan and thus has in, is inherently endowed with some of Bhagavan's powers some of Bhagavan's powers, many of them. He's self-luminous. He's not dependent on another for existence, uh, knowledge, or power. So he's, an, he's a descent. He's, he's the first, as explained earlier in the Anachena, he's the first avatar. So that's the end of the first part of this Anucheta, which has been broken apart into three subsections.
and the second subsection, which we will begin with next time we meet, whenever that may be, will be uh, dealing with some verses from the 13th chapter and the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita to clarify clarify the distinction and as we see Jiva doing again, pounding the post so that we have a very firm foundation in this knowledge. I'll stop there. Thank you very much for your association.